hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed. We may hear with joy that you say to us today. Amen. Our gospel reading today comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. I invite you to listen to the word of our Lord. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on to the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revel you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of our Lord. And our New Testament reading this morning comes from Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. If you'd like to follow along on your pew Bible, you may. It's on page 198 in the New Testament section. Uh, we're continuing our sermon series on receiving joy. And so where another play, better place to go to than Philippians um, for the word joy? The word joy in Philippians is said over and over and over again, which is ironic in a way because... Paul was writing the letter from prison. Um, he was writing it to this group of people who lived in Philippi. One he says he loved greatly, and one that um, he talks about really were the first to help financially support him. And so he has a love for, for this congregation. I invite you now <clears throat> to listen to God's word. Again, it's Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. I urge Judea and I urge Synthiki to be of the same mind in the, of the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice! In the Lord, I always say, again, again, I will say, rejoice. And let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
As for the things that you have learned and received and heard and noticed in me, do them. And the God of peace will be with you. Friends, it's the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> On uh, March 4th, 1865, President Abraham Lincoln walked up to the steps of the Capitol building. The reason? To give his second inaugural speech. Uh, to state the obvious, it, it was to say that it was a precarious time in American history. The United States was quite literally tearing itself apart. As the Civil War was nearing to an end at this time, Union armies were becoming more and more victorious on the battlefield. Those around Lincoln were both celebratory, in a celebratory mood and also a vengeful one. About a year before this, 300 Union troops, mostly African Americans, were murdered at Fort Pillar, Tennessee. Now, in a celebratory, vengeful mood, Lincoln was besieged with calls for retribution. The demands, equal number for those Confederate prisoners killed and executed for those earlier that were killed the 300 years earlier. They yearned to hear the victorious president speak of triumphalism, speak of revenge. At the very least, they wanted him to speak of satisfaction. Instead, Abraham Lincoln walked up those steps of the Capitol building, addressed the country in just 703 words, 505 of them, one syllable. The speech took less than seven minutes to deliver instead of triumphalism. In 700 words, he asked both the North and the South, the victors and the vanquished, to ponder the mystery that both read the same Bible and prayed to the same God. And each evokes the Lord's aid against the other. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. Instead of retribution, Lincoln asked for compassion. Grounded in an inclusive and unifying vision of a whole nation. Not just a collection of states, but one country and one people. Standing on those capital steps, Lincoln said, with malice toward none, with clarity, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work that we are in, to bind up the nation's rooms, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widows, and for his orphans. Forty-one days later, President Lincoln was assassinated. Historian and Presbyterian pastor Ronald White suggests that Lincoln's second inaugural was his last will and testament to America. And at the time when leadership and integrity seemed in short supply, Lincoln and his words stride across the centuries with the capacity to both convict and to heal. In an earlier precarious time in the United States, or excuse me, in human history, Paul wrote a letter to the church in Philippi about a similar conviction with the capacity for both convict, convict and heal. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, Paul writes, Stand firm in the Lord in this way. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In all those verses, 
and maybe throughout the entire letter, perhaps the most important words that Paul wrote in all of his letters were those words, the Lord is near. In those times when we can see Jesus, our Savior, up close and personal, in all those times that we cannot. Jesus is near. This is the basis of all of our hope. Whether we look at the conflict in Ukraine, or the conflict between Israel and Palestine, or whether we're witnessing conflict within our own national politics, or within our own community, within our own family, or even within our own selves. Whatever conflict that we're experiencing this morning, our hope begins and ends with those words. The Lord is near. It was a time of conflict for the church of Philippi. We do not know all the reasons why, and it really doesn't matter. Well, what we do know is that the church is always going through some type of conflict because the church is always growing. The church is always growing to look more and more and more like Jesus. And because we're made up of humans and we all have different opinions, the church will always be in some type of conflict. So as a church, we have to hold dear to the promise. The Lord is near. With Paul's words, we do know that one conflict was coming up within this church. It's between two of its leaders, Judea and Synthiki. It appears that they have created quite the argument with one another. We know little about these women, but Craig Barnes argues we do know that they were powerful and instrumental leaders because Paul mentions both of these two women by name. Paul cares both about Judea and Synthiki. He admires them. He considers both of them to be people who struggled beside him with the, the, the work of the gospel. We do not know the issue between them. And again, that really does not matter. Most often we forget about the issues and we only remember the people. Most often we remember the hurt and the fallout that those arguments had. Very rarely do we remember why we argued. My guess is this argument between these two women are spreading. That's Paul's concern. People may have taken sides. And maybe after worship, they gathered together in the parking lot talking about whose side are you going to be on? Maybe Judea and Synthiki are being committed people to the gospel. Maybe they're so convicted within their beliefs that the conflict is keeping them up late at night. Maybe they just sit there tossing in their bed, staring at the clock running through all the different scenarios in their head. I wonder if we all can relate to Judea and Synthiki. Something that we are so passionate about keeps us up at night. Perhaps like a vision startles us. We look over the clock, it's 2 a.m. We tell ourselves to go back to sleep, but we can't. We roll over and over is 205. I argue we're the right ones, weren't we? They're the wrong ones. It's 212. 
But then we think, maybe we jump to conclusions. Maybe they had a point after all. We look back at the clock, it's 2.21. Perhaps I was too harsh on what I said to them. But then we remember the harsh words they said back to us. 2.34, we're still awake. We think to ourselves, I'll write them an apology. No better yet, I'll call them. First thing tomorrow morning, I'll give them a call. I wonder though, are they still mad at me? Besides, I did have a good point. I'm not sure if I'm ready to apologize. I think I'm right. I have to stand by my convictions. On this case, I have to stand. I think I'm right. No, I'm not going to apologize. It's 2.57, and we look at the clock, and we just sit there for the next two hours rolling over and over as the clock goes over and over. Battling with this conflict that began earlier that day that we now wrestle with internally. I don't know about you, but I take comfort in knowing that the early church had such conflicts too. As one church historian suggests, we often romanticize our narrative that the first church was a, the pristine and it was uncomplicated. And we believe that people were devoted, completely devoted to each other back then, we say. Sometimes we do not even go back 2,000 years. We say, when I was growing up, when I was growing up, the church was full of people. It was a simpler time back then. After World War II, the churches were completely full. If we could just get back to World War II, uh, the circles in the 1970s, they were full of people. It was wonderful. The youth group of the 90s, so simple. They just came and came. Church was so much less complicated then we say. It's just simpler than we say. When the doors were open, people came in. We didn't have to compete with this sport or that program or those jobs. Times were just simpler back then, we say. We just got along a lot better back then, we say. But the truth of the matter is, churches have always been in conflict. And most often the church conflict begins because there's a problem within our own lives. Or there's a problem within the world. Or there's a problem within our politics or between two neighbors or at home. And no matter what the problem is, we try, but we can't fix it. So we bring those arguments to this one safe place that we know. A place that we believe will always stay the same. A place that, can exert, that we can exert influence. And a, a place that we can use our own power. A place where we are loved. We bring those problems within the church. But notice Paul's reactions to the conflict between these two ladies. Uh, Paul does not scold the women. He doesn't shame the women. He doesn't even take sides. He doesn't throw fuel on the fire, threatening over the lack of the unity within the church. He doesn't use gossip in disguise of, can you tell me a little bit more about the information? No, what Paul says is that both will have the mind of the Lord. That's it. Our prayer should be that both have the mind of the Lord. For Paul, there's nothing else to say. Because what Paul believes that these women are connected through Jesus Christ. For Paul, 
the mystery is not that these two women can hear the same gospel and yet still have conflict. For Paul, that's probably a given. The mystery, though, is that whether the two women can see it or not, that whether the church can see it or not, even in all of the conflicts within their relationships, the mystery is that they are connected for one reason, because the Lord is near. This, to me, is what the saints in our lives teach us. The only thing that truly makes us saint, Barbara Brown Taylor insists, is the love of God. Not because they're perfect, but in spite of all their conflicts, in spite of all the anxieties that lay on their shoulders, in spite of the brokenness and the imperfections, these people whom we light a candle for in a few moments remind us that the Lord is near. It's on this basis that we have hope. And why Paul is bold enough to say, rejoice amid the conflicts. For what Paul knew, what the saints in our lives knew, is that no relationship is without conflict from time to time. Even those relationships that lie within our own selves. It's about 15 years ago, a book was published with Mother Teresa's private writings. And it contained a revelation that surprised so many of them. Um, uh, Her writings revealed that Mother Teresa struggled with her faith and experienced a great deal of darkness for the last uh, 50 years of her long and remarkable life. If I ever became a saint, she wrote, I will surely be the saint of darkness. A native Albanian, she joined the Sisters of Loretta a missionary order, and was sent to Calcutta in 1929. During the 1940s, she had a mystic experience in which she heard Jesus ask her to come and be my light. Her response, I will never refuse you, Lord, followed by her vow to do something beautiful for God. Eventually, she left the Sisters of Loretta and found a new order called the Missionaries of Charity, whose mission was to bring the light of God's love to the poorest of the poor in the streets of Calcutta. Now, and that was when, what she and the missionaries did, um, Charity did. They ministered to the sick and to the dying, the homeless and the forgotten. They, they brought compassion and, and dignity to their lives. They were totally lost um, to, to all those that were totally lost and about to end. Her work was genuine and it was authentic. And after the book, Something Beautiful About God, for which told her story and her missions, she was um, um, praised, almost like a celebrity, even given a, a Nobel Prize in the 1979. Who would have known that all the while she was experiencing not the spiritual fullness and joy, not contentness and happiness always that one expected. Instead, she was battling this conflict inside of her. That of darkness and, and doubt and emptiness and longing. 
Her personal journals and correspondence with others revealed a, a brave woman doing remarkable things and yet struggling with darkness. And some of her writings were a stream of conscience. They were difficult to read. Now, Father, she writes, this terrible sense of loss, this untold darkness, this loneliness, this continued longing for God, which gives me the pain deep down in my heart, the place of God in my soul is blank. I feel that God does not want me. And sometimes I just hear my own cry, my God, and nothing else comes. Some criticized Mother Teresa. Some found her darkness the equivalent of a lack of faith. Some gleefully rubbed their hands again and said, aha, aha, her experience of God's absence means there is no God after all. We've been telling you you are wrong. Marty Martin, on the other hand, calls her journals sadly beautiful and beautifully sad. In Newsweek, Ken, Ken Woodward writes something that resonates with me. I used to feel almost put off by Mother Teresa's perfection. But now I came closer. She was human after all. I think what Paul is telling us throughout this entire letter to the Philippians is that relationships are complex. But to be able to pursue truth with one another, to be able to pursue truth with political parties and countries and histories and church, ourselves, God even, <coughs> to pursue general relationships with some complexity, we must pursue this truth without constantly arguing. Because the truth is, we live in a complex time. The saints taught us how to handle these complexity times with nuance. So Paul writes, do it with gentleness. Gentleness to be known to everyone. We can do that not because of who we are, but because we're some heroes. The only way to do that is because the Lord is near. I don't know what conflict that you're experiencing today, but I know that every single person in this room is experiencing some type of conflict. The world that we live in is too complex not to have some type of conflict going on within ourselves, whether it be us watching the Ukraine and Russia or Israel or Palestine, or whether we look at our politics and say, why can't they talk to one another? Or maybe the conflict that's doing up in you today is with the person in the cubicle next to you, or neighbor down the street, or the person who sleeps beside you in the bed. Maybe you're just conflicted with your own opinions, struggling how to handle one situation or another situation. Or your son just told you about a deep, dark secret. And you wonder, how are we going to get out of this? Or maybe you're just mad at God. Whatever the conflict is that's going on inside of you this morning. What our saints knew. 
is that the Lord is near. This is the basis of our hope, our peace, our love, and joy. This is the basis of who we are. We have hope that there will be peace for one reason. The Lord is near. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.